to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that was never employed at a theme park or amusement park or carnival. This uh, is a major concern of Saunders, Amanda, so do you have any theme park insights for us? None. I also never worked at a theme park. (laughs) Yeah, I can't even tag in and say food service, which, I don't know, is that the closest equivalent? That or working for a theater company, maybe? I mean, it's basically food and theater. That's the combo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never worked for a theater either. <laughs> so we have no personal experiences that would relate to Saunders and his major concerns. That's that much as obvious because he's yeah, big sorry. on the theme parks. <laughs> <laughs> but not even a um, what was the ocean themed SeaWorld? Does SeaWorld still exist? Is that still around? I, yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if people had just given up on the concept. I know they had some <laughs> bad publicity with some of the some of the animals. So, but yeah, that's. Um, I'm sure that would fascinate him, too. If you have no idea why we're talking about Saunders' obsession with theme parks and amusement rides and all that good stuff, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode. Specifically, it is a part two book club episode for the short story collection called Civil War Land in Bad Decline, and that is by George Saunders. We'll be discussing the second half of that book. It's mostly a, well, not mostly, it is just a novella. Um, But first things first, let's plug some social media accounts. If it's your first time listening, we are the Lightly Literary Podcast. Podcast on Instagram and Facebook as well. So if you give us a follow on those platforms, it helps a bunch to promote the show. And you know, we also post updates there and do promotions for the books we're reading, reminders of what we've got coming up. So those are helpful places to be if you want to see our work and see what we're up to. Again, it's a book club episode, so we'll be spoiling at this point the entirety of the short story collection. Uh, most of our discussion will be based on the novella that occupies the entire second half, which is called Bounty. But I think at this point we'll be discussing the other stories too if we want to nothing is off limits so to speak um but yeah our primary spoiler discussion will be for bounty today which is a novella that it was longer than i thought it was like 100 pages right yeah maybe a little bit shy of that but yeah gotcha yeah and so that's our primary object of discussion let's do this book club part two amanda anything before we start let's get some content warnings out of the way there's some big ones for this um at slavery, violence, and sexual violence were the three that I wrote down. This book includes examples of all of those things. Um, also, I guess you could say child abuse, maybe? I don't know. That's That part's a little shakier, but I think it fits pretty well. And I don't... Anything I'm missing? Those are the big ones. I don't think so. I think that covers all of it. It's so... The worst things about humanity are covered here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that's a very fair way to summarize it. So if that, if that very brief and frightening short list, you know, didn't put you off, then you're, you'll be fine because those are the big ones. And I don't, as always, I can't speak to when those topics will come up, when we will be discussing them exactly. So if you're wary of those things, then uh, perhaps come back for another book discussion or just join in. We're usually pretty pretty sensitive and alert to it, so it's not like we kind of go through recklessly anyway those are the the warnings for this one shall we do a summary challenge then amanda Ooh, let's try it i know it's been a while since i've read this so (laughs) we we paused a week for recording so it's been yeah we're not as fresh on this one as we normally are so we're definitely gonna have to think carefully and do a summary challenge let's have you go first then i'm gonna throw you into the fire okay (laughs) all right uh let's see here let me get my stopwatch going. Okay. Are you? Do you feel prepared for the 60-second summary challenge? This is when Amanda and I will each attempt a plot summary of what we read in 60 seconds only. Just to catch up for those folks who haven't read in a while or maybe just didn't read at all, this will be a chance for you to you know, be aware of what the book's about. Amanda, are you prepared? 
I'm ready. Alrighty, uh, you can start now. Um, so the main character is um, with his sister in a park where they are pretty much slaves, or at at the very least indentured servants. Um, and they are they are um, mutated in some way uh, because of industrial waste. Um, and are therefore excluded from the government in a lot of ways. They have no protections. Um, and the sister is um, essentially a prostitute within this weird fantasy land park and is offered um, to be the mistress of a super rich guy. So she goes off with him and the brother is worried 20. because he heard that actually she probably is going to be sold off later. So he um, goes on this cross-country journey and um, gets to live through Ten. all the horrors of what's happening out there until he finally finds his sister who's pregnant and happy and then he joins a rebellious cause. Nice. You snuck it in right under time. Very good. <laughs> Whew, I that, skipped um, so much. <laughs> well, I do think that I'll say one thing is a uh, spoiler ahead. I think you basically did the... You did the summary in a way that embodied the parts I liked of the book. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> I like the opening, and then the journey stuff was just kind of, I didn't, you know, connect with as much, and then the ending, I was kind of intrigued, so it was like, I think that's actually a fine way to do it. Anyway, okay, uh, I will do my attempt. Uh, I, I've got my own timer already set up, so I'll just, I'll start it in a second. No need to pull one. Gotcha. All right, begin. Yes, a boy and his sister live in a theme park, which they were thrown into by their parents. Uh, this is a post-apocalyptic sort of America, though it's kind of a quiet post-apocalypse. And they work at the theme park. She is a sex worker, and he is kind of a do-it-all, clean-up guy, food worker, does odd jobs. She eventually leaves because she is literally bought by a man who fancies her, and he goes after her to try and save her. In his journey across America, he becomes employed by some people. He becomes enslaved by some people. He escapes. He survives. He endures. I guess I should have mentioned that he is, this is in America with a slave cast of people who have mutations. So because of, yeah, developments in industrial waste, there's literally like a caste system that's in, in the laws and he and his sister both have mutations. So anyway, he's attacked for that and again enslaved because of it. Eventually he finds her again in the West. She's doing actually fine and is pregnant. And then he joins up with a rebellion group after witnessing some horrific things and kind of participating in those things time nice i seeing the time i think helps i think i'm going to do that in the future <laughs> i think it's a good motivator for me i need that visual cue on the screen to <laughs> push me push me forward um okay we both condensed quite a lot for sure that we did yeah. hit the major notes <laughs> anything that we egregiously missed i mean we're about to dig into the quotes anyway but any any major plot beats that we should have mentioned um Oh, maybe that the main character's mutation um, is well hidden unless he takes off his shoes. So he can right. kind of like, uh, I guess, pass in a way for what they would call like a normal. Yes. Yes, that is critical to at least one of the mini storylines on his adventure where he becomes employed. He like rescues a person and then gets a job offer because of his heroism. And yeah, so that's actually critical because the reason he gets the job offer and what undoes him later is the revelation of his mutation. He is clawed feet like um, I don't know, I guess kind of like bird claws must look like they they only describe them once or twice. I guess it's yeah. just yeah, claws. And so, um, yeah, and his sister has a tail. Though it's, I believe the term is vestigial tail. It's like a, not a, you know, it's not a large, like, animal-like tail. 
Yeah, he he goes out of his way to say that it's like barely there, but right. he's there. Yeah. yeah, part of the, of course, you know, ironic humiliation or like twisted irony is that these are things that would not truly matter or even be noticeable. But of course, the entire society is bent and curved around the sort of yeah enslaving or casting these people out. Let's dig into some yeah. quotes. So let's let's dive into some specifics here of the story. Do you want to go first? I pulled three, the usual amount, but we can start with one of yours. Anything thematically you want sure. to hit first? Sure. Um, I only pulled uh, two quotes, but um, the first one is from page 126. Um, So what I liked uh, about Saunders is I like the way that he um, writes conversations, especially um, in how they kind of like give us insights into um, the, the characters and um, it just, uh, he's got like some funny beats, I think, when, when he does that kind of stuff. It's indulgent, um, this one, too. Compared to yeah. the other ones, this one felt way more dialogue driven than the other well, stories. Yes. Uh, and, and, and in this particular conversation, it's um, Blay, who's the person who um, hired the main character. Mm hmm. Um, and. Then we have the main character who's like, you know, kind of like scared. He's out on his own for the first time. But um, he says, I'm, I'll just read really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Blaze says, life has been kind to me. He says, so very kind, damn kind. When I was about your age, I had an idea. I thought, these hard times have taken the wind out of our collective sails. People live like pigs. Time for a dash of luxury. And do you know what I did? No. I say, I built mud huts for a minimum wage for five grueling years. He says, ate bread crusts and never had any alcoholic beverage or a minute of relaxation. I worked every minute of overtime I could, cautiously saving my wages. Then do you know what I did? No. I say, just outside Erie, Pennsylvania, I built the most ass-kicking clean air geodesic dome you've ever seen and spent my last dime on rich soil and some ash saplings. Are you following me? Of course not. No offense, because that was my moment in the sun. The instantaneous showing out of my genius, not yours. And the culmination, do you know it? The culmination? No, I say. What so like what I loved about this conversation is this guy's just like so bubbly and so full of life and personality. He's telling his life story and the main character's like, no, no, yes, no, no. <laughs> like, well it is and nobody it, notices. <laughs> it's a fascinating notice. blend because it's both the sort of indulgent storytelling style that any successful person well, I shouldn't say any, but that many successful people will have, you know, to regale you with the tales of their success, especially if they're a little yeah. older, you know, it's like they had their big adventure or whatever. Um, so I think that's well observed. But then also there is a certain charm to it, especially in this story coming off of like most of the people he meets along the way, even his bosses at the theme park are pretty horrific and exploitative and like explicitly or in your face kind of bad. And this guy is like, he's charming at least, or is is kind of like friendly, approachable, but he's still, you know, he still wants to (laughs) make his story known. Right. And, and he still um, is, is offering the main character a job based on the assumption that he is not, um, mutated in some right. way. Yeah. And this conversation also mirrors another conversation that the main character has with Artie, who is the owner, uh, the brothel owner's son, who's mm-hmm. in college, and he has these ideals about, like, oh, we shouldn't enslave people. But then he goes on anyway to follow his dad's um, uh, directives and right, you know, right. get 
tells the main character, like, well, you're going to be a slave worker now. Sorry. But, you know, let me tell you about why this is so wrong, but I'm not actually going to do anything wrong. And the whole time that he's like on another spiel, again, we have the main character who's just monosyllabically responding yes no yes no right um, right which is really interesting that these these characters are so full of like good intentions and ideals and they're like puffing themselves up as these people who are like good people but then they actually there's no action taken so they're full of which is really symbolic right they're just full of hot air and they're not actually going to do anything very like what I would imagine is like a politician a lot yeah. of the time. <laughs> entrenched would be yeah, they're yeah. just entrenched. Well let's let's switch to not switch, but let's segue then. Let's talk about the depiction of slavery. I mean obviously if you set a story in the United States and then decide to make slavery the kind of plot driver, then that's a major <laughs> it's like a pretty major decision. So yeah. um, as to the history of our nation shows it's like a pretty massive, you know, part of the history of the country. So anyway, I think it's probably important that we talk about how he deals with it. I don't how did you feel? I felt it was I, a little slapdash. Just this is falls in that classic category of like, I don't know. I think Saunders does have the insight and does have kind of the emotive range to do a story like this. But I don't know if it should have been a novella then. Like, why not do a novel? And it just felt rushed at times um, and maybe a little bit too simplified. But I, I don't know. It's a novella as well. It's not a novel. But here's a quote just about the conditions. This is when he's well and truly enslaved. Like, he's not escaping. He's not running away. He's fully captured, fully in, you know under someone's control. And this is kind of how he's living. Uh, this is on 157 for me. Every half hour, he comes out and beats me up. I get no food. I get no water. Whenever I fall asleep, he sends over a lackey to burn me with a match. He parades his other flaws by, and they make fun of my claws and spit on me and tell me to quit being snotty and join the club so we can head west. I humiliate myself by telling them I'd very much like to join the club and begging Krenup to untie me. Finally, after three days, he does. I'm so happy I try to hug him, and he knocks me down in the dirt with his oar and says my cheekiness has just earned me a two additional days. And then when those two days are up, I don't hug or thank him. I meekly shut I flinch, I hear voices, I drool. I follow him to, into the trailer and stand in a milk crate in a crap-coated stall where four elderly flaws check my body for lice, then dress me in coarse baggies and lead me to a wagon driven by Molly, a hag whose flaw is a colossal turkey neck. She gives me a smile while wearing, uh, while smearing antibiotic on her swaddles, then hops down and adds me in a line of 30 flaws chained together in the back of the wagon, and off we go. And they're going to, you know, literal slave market. It's, I think this is, maybe this is Saunders' most Hemingway moment, you know, Hemingway-esque, like, <laughs> keep it clippy, keep it, you know, pretty direct and look it in the eye sort of a thing. And I think there's things in there that read kind of true, like his emotional confusion that he, he like has the Stockholm syndrome response. He wants right. to like hug his master, but then obviously is beaten for it. And then there's like, there's brutality, but it's not, it doesn't linger on it or anything. And it all feels... I don't know. It's almost like Sparknotesy, especially compared to how, of, of course, incisive and unique Saunders is able to to be as kind of like a creative person. It just yeah. didn't. I don't know. It just didn't feel as unique as some of the short stories did, uh, which is you know all well and good. I think the line in there about drooling—that's the sort of like subtle, unexpected observation. It's not. It's it's you know almost a little silly or humorous, though. You know, it's obviously not at all. But that's the sort of Saunders offbeat that I was 
I don't know, than I anticipate. But I do feel like some of the brutality of the slavery parts, uh, yeah, it just didn't, um, it didn't feel fully fleshed out to me or felt a little too simple. It, it definitely felt almost more like just um, a, a list of, of things that like he's ticking off as he's um, explaining what's happening to him. But I do remember reading that and thinking specifically about the drooling line. And I was like, that's interesting. Like, why is that there? What is what is that indicating about the character? So, like, I remember fixating on that because it was unexpected. Everything else seemed almost mm, like expected. Yeah. Um, which it would be fine if he had gone into more detail, as you said, but, but it it otherwise, like, just as I was reading it, it was like, I was reading just a list of things that, that like we, you know, as we learn about slavery and stuff in, in school, like it's, yeah, that's what we would expect to see. Yeah, and I I do think for me some of the characterization work with the one the people who find him and sell him to slavery they're kind of presented as I guess like country bumpkins Hicks in the you know like pejorative term and then his master and slaver capture what, what you know whatever you want to call title to give him credit up they also just I think at that point the some of the dialogue um, back and forth like silliness almost like some of the the way they speak to each other is almost so heightened as to be silly i also think that just kind of wore on me after a while like you had mentioned this is a much more conversational like dialogue rich story than some of the other ones we've read though i think i think you're right he has a kind of an ear for dialogue in all the stories like there's moments in this where it works incredibly well too but i think that those characters those moments just kind of it just all felt a little heavy handed and just kind of simple and stuff. And I think, so by the mm-hmm. time we get to the passage I read, which is, you know, that's the nitty gritty, the brutality, that's like the most vicious, disgusting stuff. It just didn't, I don't, yeah, it didn't land for me at that point. I think, I, I don't know, maybe I was just wary or worn down, but I, I didn't think it was his best, you know, his best work of this collection. Yeah, I get that. Um, yeah. The, and I had just, as you mentioned, the the person who caught him, he also, um, like Artie and like uh, Blay, he also has a long conversation with the main character to where he's um, explaining, like, trying. he's, like, trying to to divide out, like, the, the morality of what he's doing. He's like, I'm not a bad person, but if I let you go, which is the right thing to do, then I'll get punished and I won't be free of my... my terrible situation so why would I punish myself for doing something good like that's not right and so he's like working it out in his mind but again we have that that long conversation on on one side and then the the monosyllabic responses on the other um to show like the the inactivity again of of people who seem to mean well and I think, too, the the person who's having that one-sided debate with himself, doesn't he say, you know, it's like his family thinks he's kind of dumb and they yeah. underestimate him and he's he's maybe, he they, they tell him he's not as intelligent as the rest of the family, so he looks down at himself like it. Yeah, it was all just, I, I don't know, just played for, played for like simplest common denominator, maybe not lowest common. I, I'm not sure if that's a just made up expression I just created, but <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it wasn't, I just didn't think it was his best creative 
like insightful stuff. Um, yeah. Let's talk about family as kind of a motif or theme uh, because I mostly just because I have another quote ready for that. But one of the characters that did fascinate me that did seem rather Saunders like in its inventiveness and surprise in the narrative is when he first leaves the theme park when he's going to find his sister. He decides to journey across America. He meets this old woman who has like a really yes. well put together tent in this shanty town. That I thought was a pretty intriguing inclusion. I don't know if you picked up on her character. Um, so And so interestingly, yes. she's trying to get him to stay with her. She doesn't want him to go on this journey. It's too dangerous. He's going to be enslaved. And she says, um, she stops to regain her composure. I awkwardly pat her age humped back. She regards me fiercely. Now, what makes you think you're any different from my Addy? That's her son who was enslaved and killed. She says, are you smarter, stronger, better prepared? He says, I can hide my flaw by always wearing my shoes. I say feebly. Pshaw, she says, it's those people's business to know a flawed. They can smell a flawed coming. They eat flawed's for breakfast. She's my sister, I say. I have to go. And then she says, then get out of my sight. And she turns on him in an instant. Like, she gets furious with him, it seems, that he won't stay and that he's rejecting her advice. I found this exchange really fascinating because of... She was so welcoming and was such an odd figure compared to the rest of the people around. But, like, she turns on him right away as soon as he, you know, seems to think he's better than her son. So she's also defensive. She's also seems a little emotionally unstable or kind of broken. I don't know. Yeah. How do you read her? What's her role in this story, you feel? I I found her character really fascinating, too. She's like the one kind person that he actually encounters um, on his on his journey, but <coughs> her character, I think the word broken, as you said, I think that's that's perfect. She she seems to be strong because she stands up uh, to the mayor of Shantytown, and she's like, "You can't do anything to me." And they like tear down her tent. She's like, "Man, whatever. I'll just rebuild, and it'll still be better than the crap that you guys have." Um, and so when she, when um, the main character says that he has to go, she's she looks at it as he is wasting his life and is therefore wasting her time and the energy that she put into saving him, right? Because she she risked her her well property and everything else to to help save him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what makes her turn on him. Is just that she she sees it as another she sees him as another life wasted and she's just like everybody else's life is being wasted why are you wasting yours um so that's why she yeah. turns on him i find her fascinating did too. you th- is that a bit of projection you think for the son she lost or something she's like you know oh, projecting sure. onto him it seemed like yeah definitely and I would, yeah, I had high hopes for her, not that she would adventure with him or would help him or something, but it was, well, I think that's the Saunders twist, though, is you take somebody who's pretty, you know, eminently likable and kind of sympathetic, and then you, you make it so that they just, they're tormented or they're doomed or they're, uh, whatever, you know, <laughs> negative outcome happens to them or befalls them. So, yeah, she did feel like a pretty Saunders-y invention. But, and they, she bantered with the, the leader of the shanty town too, which I enjoyed. Like, it just felt like that was a bit of an offbeat moment. Um, she also, I don't, I don't think we do the background research ahead of time. The research department didn't tag in on this one, but she also has kind of um, that mythological feel of like an older person of wisdom, you know, like an adventure, a hero needs some kind of advice from, you know, a seer or some kind of, I don't know, shamanistic presence or something. <laughs> she felt yeah, that definitely. way to me. And she has her, and the other part of that too is it's not that she's living in a cave literally, but she's got her like tent that's really, it's like she's cultivating it. It's really protected and safe. So it, it does feel like the stopping point for him. But of course, like the, the fact that it ends that way and bitterness about family, like I think the themes there were 
yeah, pretty pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. What, when yeah, I first encountered her character, I was like, oh, is this going to be kind of um, in the vein of, like, the Odyssey? Are we going to see some mm-hmm. of the same um, uh, characters, but maybe twisted, um, so, uh, given right. a Saunders twist to it? So I was keeping that in mind as I read, for sure. And perhaps we could, as as is so popular as an analytical framework or lens, we could probably slap some of those things on there. You know, we could read sure. his, the guy who's selling the couches or, you know, the guy from Buffalo is some kind of, I don't know, who's in the Odyssey, where do they get stuck? Lotus Eaters or who's the woman yep. who, like, wants yep. to keep them for a while? I, yeah, there's, yep. you know, there's, like, loose comparisons that wouldn't be very, <laughs> I haven't thought them through very hard, so. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely some... I don't know. Maybe not one-to-one comparisons, but some other ratio. Uh, what else from this one you want to discuss? Any other quotes, themes? Um, just ideas? Um, I, there was on page one fifty-six, which is right before um, when you were talking about the torment of being a slave. Um, there was the actual like law that he laid out the law of of the slavery. So um, it says. Um, he cracks me in the back of the legs until I'm on my knees, then tells me to get up because I'm on the clock. Then he knocks me down again and with his foot on my chest explains that per federal mandate 12, I'm to be compensated for my involuntary servitude. However, I'm also to be charged for my food and water and for every minute he has to spend reprimanding me or beating me senseless or even thinking about me. Whatever money is left, which invariably will be exactly nothing, will be deposited in his bank account for disbursement whenever he sees fit, which will typically be never. So that was interesting to me that there was an actual law that is on its face value supposed to be there to protect... Uh, the flawed, uh, but in reality is just nothing. And so uh, Saunders is kind of pointing to the inadequacies of like government mandates and government laws as they are twisted and used in reality. And I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's telling that there's really no nefarious force in his stories that are government related. It's more that the government is inactive or like, I don't know, limp, powerless. It's like every tormentor in this story is his is a boss, just a different type. <laughs> An indentured servant boss, a slave master boss, like I don't, you know, you can I guess that's a wide umbrella I'm using for the term boss. But it's it's a person who's trying to employ him. Even the two people who might be his saviors, the guy from Buffalo and then the guy who buys him from the slave auction who seems kind of I don't know, um altruistic, I guess, and helpful, but he he yeah. doesn't trust him at that point. He's so broken that he can't and rightfully probably shouldn't trust anyone and so he does escape from that guy too even though that guy frees him from the shackles and he promises him a life as like what like a shepherd yeah but it's still indentured servitude yeah, it's still slavery right. and he shoots at him when he runs away yes right and so even yeah there's heavy <laughs> heavy suspicions of course as saunders is apt to be or is want yeah. to be that this person is also not to be trusted he could have stepped into the jesus role though and been a shepherd you know, peaceful yeah. little shepherd, man. <laughs> I guess in the end, he is kind of a revolutionary shepherd. So if I want to, I'm going to drag this Jesus kind of metaphor across <laughs> the ground until it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> um, should we talk about the conclusion then? Because it is, it's abrupt. And so yeah, I think it's, it. you know, it could be read interestingly. Um, the, I think I want to actually read the final, like literal final lines. Mostly just because it's, um. Yeah, it's quite a turn. So he leaves his life with his sister, which is comfortable. They're being cared after by a successful businessman, capitalist guy. 
And this is how he, um, yeah, this is how it concludes. He says, there's a rebel cell recruiting down in Talpa. According to Corbett, there are a bunch of skinny, passionate guys in a leaning barn practicing hand-to-hand with broomsticks and eating vanilla wafers provided in bulk by a sympathetic grocer f- from Chimeo. After I kiss Connie goodbye and the baby goodbye and shake Corbett's hand and off I go. The night's cold. I see a bushel of snow-frosted apples and two black horses snorting at a frozen shirt on a fence post, and I'm lonely already. There's a half moon above the rebel barn. I give a little knock. I'm here to help, I whisper, and the door swings open. And that's it. So he's joining up with his rebels. What uh, what images should we unpack first? A little moon image, a little snow-frosted apples, some black horses? Like, I don't know. It's it's certainly not a scene of comfort. Yes. It's, it's like we, it's we have very really uninviting. no clue... Yeah, you really have no clue. I mean, we have a clue. We can analyze and get, take some guess clues as to why he would leave, you know, his sister's being at his sister's side and living a life of comfort versus this. Do you feel like the character trajectory, how do you read it? Do you feel like it's clear? Do you feel like you get it? Uh, Yeah, I think that he It's also a way for him, like the way that his character progresses is also a way for him to understand his dad's actions as well because he he keeps getting mm. these flashbacks about his dad and like w- his perceived weaknesses as a person um but his dad makes the ultimate move which is he sacrifices himself but he he like throws his kids over this wall to make sure at least they are able to survive um and that in and trusting that somebody will take them in right. um and which so they did. like it's this well, and, it, yeah. and exploited them, so it's you know, of course, it's, yes, it's yes. Uh, Saunders' world. It's never gonna, yeah. There's there's no happy ending, <laughs> whatever you want to frame that. Yeah, um, but at least they were being you know fed and you know they were warm and stuff. So yeah. it's this. I think that it was um, a kind of like a, a mirroring of what his dad did, and it's this this act of sacrificing self for the good of others. Right. Um, which makes him because his sister had and his mother both said that the dad was like just weak. Well, and, yeah, and, and he's stupid like and all heckled stuff. for it, you know, even exactly. tormented to a to a level for it. Right, right. Um, but ultimately, he was compassionate, and that's what this main character chooses is is to to do better for others than for just himself. Yeah, and he can't quite you know, quit on it even after the hell he went through and lived through. I think it's, you know, I think it is the right parallel. I think that's exactly the character beat to notice. I just, I, maybe I wish then that the flashbacks would have happened more persistently or consistently because it's really like only in the first third that we get that insight. And then, you know, once he's on his journey across America, that's that's what he's doing. I don't know, maybe am I calling in an unusual move and I, am I calling for just like explain your themes to me a little more than Saunders? Like, but I, it's true though. That's a great <laughs> parallel. I think it's the right, yeah comparison to i don't know to sort of get as an inside i I suppose i'll say that given how muted his comfortable life is like in terms of just narrative description in terms of the time spent on the page like his turn to leave and his turn to go back into the fight i guess it didn't surprise me because his life there is actually pretty quiet like there's just not a lot of description of it it doesn't seem like he's settling in in a meaningful way and once he knows his sister is safe and she's happy it's like his purpose is void or something it does it does feel like the story treats it as if he just ends up in kind of a, a no zone like a non-zone you know like a void like it's not like he feels deep satisfaction by being by her side there right i don't yeah. know if, any, if I mean, that's connecting like- but yeah, I think so. And and he says, like, looking at his niece, right, um, 
and she's also a flawed. She has the same yeah um, vestigial tail. Vestigial tail, yeah. So that that is what ultimately uh, he says like kicks him into the protective gear and makes him want to uh, join the movement. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it happens in two pages, and it begins with, you know, he's looking at the ranch, and he's going to kill this man. That's what he thinks he's going to do. And he says, you know, I'm looking at this man who could have been her savior, but instead chose to be her executioner. He's going to kill him. And he says, after that, I don't know what I'll do. And then, like, the lines when he realizes she's pregnant, it just says, there's Connie big as a house. Pregnant. I look at her. She looks at me. And then, you know, later, then we have lunch. Over soup, he asks me if I want a job on grounds. I say, sure. Next morning, he gives me a Walkman. Soon, I'm an old hand. Like, it, it's just so collapsed. And it, there's just no sense of him being satisfied or having purpose or it's yeah again it just feels like this neutral no no zone this void in the narrative which you know it's purposeful then because then it slingshots him out again into some conflict that'll give him purpose i suppose yeah it's yeah i thought it was a kind of fitting enough ending if abrupt i think abrupt endings can be enjoyable though a lot of the time yeah any final thoughts on this novella i will say that and i guess i tip this review so to speak early i it just didn't land with me like a lot of the short stories did i i don't think it's poorly done or ineffective but i do think it feels a bit well it feels like somebody's first published you know long thing (laughs) it feels like an early book you know like something somebody figuring some ideas out and trying some you know techniques or narrative moves or whatever and i it just didn't yeah it didn't fully land with me I, I liked it. Um, and okay, I yeah. also, as I was reading it, I was keeping in mind the other themes that I had picked up on in the short stories, which was about compassion and how compassion is often seen as a weakness and taken advantage of. And in this story, um, ultimately, in the end, talking about the conclusion, when he chooses to um, join the rebellion... Um, that compassion gives him a sense of of completeness right he's he did the survival thing like everybody else like he was he's just like living off of his kind of brother-in-law like i don't mm-hmm. his his sister's baby daddy i don't because <laughs> they can't get married right that's illegal um and um and and so he's got the survival thing down so like what is survival is just survival there's no um, fulfillment from that and he doesn't get that fulfillment until he joins uh, the rebellion so that's another side of that compassion compassion brings fulfillment um, because it gives you um, a higher sense of survival a higher right. something above just survivability so I wish maybe <clears throat> then the story had veered harder because did you get the sense when he joined up with the Buffalo guy scheme he was going to you know work for him and took that uh, alluring job I guess maybe I was hoping that would last longer. I think it's, of course, thematically interesting that it doesn't, and he's undone by sexual desire. He's like a young kid, and so, of course, you know, like, that that totally undoes him, and if there's the flaw cast system, and he gets, you know, shunned, whatever, chased out. But I, mm-hmm. I do, I maybe I would be more intrigued by the, a narrative version of this where he's seemingly pulled harder by other forces because other than that moment it just kind of felt like this story was on train tracks or something like it just i guess it there were moments i'd have to think harder about which ones in particular but like it does feel like this moment it was just kind of like well he's got to get there so we're just going to kind of push and trundle along in this narrative it's inevitable he's got to get there and so i i don't know i feel like some of those forces and maybe in a novel those things could be longer 
chunks that are explored yeah. but because that, yeah. that part also i think that was my favorite like sub story or moment because i really wanted him to like be with that businessman more like you quoted his dialogue i found him an intriguing character so i was like oh, yeah. i wish that part would have been longer you know yeah that was um <clears throat> what what bothered me about that storyline or not bothered me but like had me thinking was when he uh, goes off and loses his virginity to this stranger, whereas mm-hmm. he was like kind of dating a flawed back at the camp or at the the mm-hmm. park, um, but he like never had like any intimacy with her. So I was just I was just like, why is it that now all of a sudden he's just like so quick to lose his virginity like that? I don't know. Maybe he's high on his like weird, uh, he's high on his privilege you know he's he's got some money uh, he's eating good yeah. food he's you know he's indulging he's i don't know yeah uh, and they're throwing her at him also that's like a notable i don't yeah that shows like kind of the desperation of the outside world the parents are basically forcing the match just to get her yeah get her out get her away from them or something yeah anyway yeah any other final thoughts on bounty like big picture stuff overall thoughts reviews mm, insights nope, i'm good yeah, not my favorite, but that's okay. I found this collection really fascinating. I think it is, yeah, it's it's a pretty comfortable position, I think, for Saunders now. It, it Just in terms of this being his first thing, it feels like his first thing. Like, having read yeah. most of his other stuff, this does feel like a person beginning a journey, not, like, arriving at a point. <laughs> and I, but, you know, really fascinating for that reason, too. So, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, let's do your essay first. I guess you're on the, you're on the slate first for today. Um, we're going to do our imaginary essays. Sure. So, this is a segment we always do in Book Club Part 2s, where we assign the other person an imaginary essay question. We have not actually written essays. That would be, that would be nuts. So we're just here to discuss, openly <laughs> plan out and write down some thoughts. It's just one more analytical way for us to look at the work and, you know, hash out some thoughts about what it was like. I did give you one just on bounty. I figured that would be appropriate since we are in that part of the collection. But if you want to mention the other ones, you definitely can. I think that's fine. Um, there, this is a rich enough text, though, that I think it deserves the the close look. So the question is that Bounty is in a kind of a strange way a survey of America, and it's quite notably a travel story because to you know accomplish his quest, he literally like crosses all of America essentially. Um, so how do you read this as an allegory for America or American history? I suppose if you think that's possible, or did you just feel like there were certain moments, themes, or characters that gave you an insight into American life? So what's your reading of Bounty as this America allegory? Um, I, I saw it as Saunders' perception of America and how um, selfish people are people in power. Selfish, there's self, selfish organizations, which is um, the, the basis for the flaws. And um, rare unselfish acts um, are often punished or taken advantage of. And they're also just, like, really rare. And also there's a touch of, like, xenophobia. He thinks um, that uh, people are, are afraid of otherness in a lot of Hard ways. Hard to have a slave narrative without that, to be sure. <laughs> yeah. If you're going <laughs> to... Yeah. If that's the direction you want to push things, then yeah. Yeah. Um, so with the, the source of the othering and the enslaving, those mutations were caused by toxic dumping of industries. So there we have like these big corporations that are selfish. They have limited foresight and the government is not really regulating that. Or if they are regulating it, there's not enough of a, a punishment to stop, 
um, these big corporations from doing what they want to do, essentially. Um, so again, we have we see that uh, it, the country is being run by people who are selfish, and then the government that's supposed to be there for the people to protect the people um, is actually there more so as like a front to make it look like that's actually happening. But in the reality, uh, it's not uh, helping the people at all. Um, And so then uh, the punishment is afterwards, after these people become infected, the punishment is not against the corporations that cause these issues. The punishment is actually for those who are victims of that toxic dumping. Um, so again, we see the failure of the government of government intervention and how people are quick to other others, other people. Yeah, and, othering, sure. Uh, yeah, instead of um, fighting for people who are being victimized. Um, so then we have um, the main character's childhood where we have the mom versus the dad, where the mom is, um, she's like storing away food. She's kind of, she sees what's happening in the country. And instead of giving away the stuff like his dad does, (laughs) um, she's actually like quietly hoarding things and collecting things without even telling the dad. Um, And she's like preparing for a new reality. Whereas the dad is, is saying like, you know, we don't want to be a part of the the main movement of selfishness. We actually want to help those in need. We don't want to be those people. We want to maintain our humanity. And the mom is like, you crazy. Um, <clears throat> and so, the narrative treats him poorly, too. So I think that's oh, thematically yeah. telling, though. I, it is his. He is the one who commits the final I don't know, selfless act, right, of th- right. tossing the kids over. So, I, yeah, it's exactly. interesting because uh, until then, basically everything he's done is wrong. I mean, in terms of just outcomes. <laughs> right. He's definitely he, he was looking at more of the greater good rather than the immediate good of his family, whereas the mom is looking at the immediate good of the family and not at the greater good of humanity. So there's two different perceptions there where the mom is seen as like being heroic and the dad is seen as being very foolish Yeah. <clears throat> until the end when the main character comes to kind of realize the dad's final act there. And then the f- main character also goes off and sacrifices himself and, and comfort and everything else for the greater good. Um, right. So you see, like, in his memories about his mom and dad, there's, like, they get picked up by a couple to drive them across the country. And then it turns out the couple was like, hey, you know, like, let's let's be swingers. Let's uh, swap partners. Right. And his yeah. mom and dad are both like, no. <laughs> and so they got kicked out. <clears throat> um, so, again, we see that, you know, people on both like a grander scale, which is the industry and on like an individual scale, which would be that couple. They, they only are out for themselves. If there is a good act, if there is a kindness, there is this idea of what do we get in return for that? Mm -hmm. Um, We also have in um, the main characters first interaction with anyone outside of the, of the park, um, the tent town of normal. So these, these people who are super poor and that he helped by like throwing food over the wall for them and stuff like that. 
Um, But he's instantly shunned because he's different when they strip him so when he, they he walks in the the first thing they do instead of welcoming him and this is like an outcast town right instead of right welcoming outside. him yeah they <clears throat> he's like stripped of everything and he's um like beaten and ridiculed and then the mayor comes and he's like whoa 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 this dude helped us but then when he realizes that he's actually a flawed, he also turns on him. So, <clears throat> again, the the importance of othering, that xenophobia, that fear of um, of interacting with people who are seen as, like, not outlaws, but those who are outliers of the norm. Um, that is taking prevalence over just basic kindness. Um yeah, and I mean, it's so codified in this story that it's there's it does cut across, like you're saying, kind of class lines or that these people have they're living in total. They're also been dejected and rejected and they're not in the system. But yet they also still have hatred for the flawed people for the, you know, those designated. And yeah, it does. I think Saunders relies on that kind of divide in the story. For sure. And we see that again with like uh, several other things. I won't I won't go too much into detail, but there's like. <clears throat> the man who sold him into slavery. There's the college student. There's uh, the guy who gave him the job. All these people who are, who who want to believe that they're good people, but ultimately they don't take action to help those who actually need the help, which would be the, the people who are flawed or are, are called flawed. Um, and and again, the selfishness got to preserve myself. Oh, I, if I preserve myself, then I can help others along the way later. That's still just preserving themselves. And at what point do you stop preserving yourself in order to help others? Um, and that's something that he plays with too. So um, the only ones who are working for society um, are the ones that are risking their lives. So we see one rebellious group, which is the group that um, breaks into the brothel to help the flawed there. Um, and they are the ones who are shunned by society, obviously, because they're, they're working against society. Um, and they are also against the government. Um, so they take no help from the government and have no faith in the government. They are hidden in a cave and they have to resort to violence and subterfuge, which is an interesting element as well, because you have, they are actively, Instead of surviving to survive, they are actively risking their lives, which is, um, but they're also perpetuating these acts of violence in order to, uh, to spread compassion, which is an interesting, uh, irony there as well. What more do we need to know about Saunders than the fact that they are bankrolled by, you know, an anonymous, like, benefactor? They're not, (laughs) they they don't have the, they don't have the kind of righteous insight and justification that they think they do. It's just somebody who's bored and has a lot of money and is like, eh, this seems like a good thing to do. I guess I'll help them. (laughs) It's like, secretly, (laughs) they have no, you know, they don't have the insight or power or control that they think they do, so... Yeah, that's as much of a commentary on America as, as Saunders, I think, directly provides, um, or is going to directly provide. Good. Any final thoughts on American, uh, yeah, themes, in and out groups is big then, and yeah, pa- who holds power, the, those are the insights. Um, any final thoughts, yeah, on the morality? Oh, did we hit those points? I was just checking the bullets. Oh, okay. Just wanted to make sure. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's it is kind of a fascinating allegory. I think again, his treatment of slavery is I think simplistic, maybe even maybe even bad, but also there's some other really fascinating stuff going on. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, throw yours my way, and I'll I'll tackle it as best I can. Sure. In the author's note, Saunders explains that the heart of this book is to explore the question: Why is the world so harsh to those who are losing? How does this book answer that question, or does it at all? Oh, I think it does, like aggressively so. So he's he's obviously um, poised to have a good insight into his own work. So, <laughs> um, and I, I found the author's note to be to be pretty helpful and illuminating. And I, I am just going to tackle it through bounty. I'm going bounty heavy. I just figured we deserve it. to give it its its due and justice, just because this is the yeah. half of the, the collection. But again, I think bounty can answer this question perfectly fine. Like it, it's a great study for this question. I think the conclusion too. We already read the conclusion on set 179, but it throws it into really sharp relief because this is a person who spent the whole book losing right and he yeah. finally gets a world that is not harsh to him and what does he choose to do <laughs> he chooses to re-enter the harsh like beaten down cause that is going to you know seemingly fail and has no chance of succeeding and and again the character does it kind of abruptly without i mean he has deep motivation because of the life he's lived but he doesn't have deep stated motivation like on the page he doesn't have some revelation he's just kind of drawn to it like he just in a zombie-esque way has to he feels the pull toward the cause and i think I think right. that's, you know, yeah, I feel like that's itself a meaningful insight. Like, I, do you think the rest of the stories, I guess I'd pose this question, the characters are, are so zombie selfless? Like this, it was an interesting ending, I guess. Do you, do you think it sits with the other stories in some kind of thematic way, coherent way? <clears throat> I think it's more hopeful than the other stories. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, because the other stories, they kind of end with like, Yep, you've you've shown compassion your whole life, and uh, everything falls apart for you at the end. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's yeah, it's like you were doing so well, or you um, things things have beaten you down, and there's no way out, and it's just kind of yeah. the story lingers at that fact. Orden's yeah. in literal death a couple of times, so there's also <laughs> yeah. that brutality. And so yeah, I think it, it's it is unique to see a character then who chooses to put it on himself. It's like he's he's like I'm going to choose the harsh world over a comfortable life where I don't have to lose. Uh, so, so to speak. So that's that's a really fascinating exit to that story. Um, I think on 99, we see his sister's choice. We didn't talk about her as much. She's also not in the story that much. But she does choose this future. She basically says she'll never accept degradation again. That's why she, she finds the sex work, like, more fulfilling and just fills her with, you know, human pride and, like, human dignity more than the other stuff she was doing, which was, like, more grotesque and disgusting. And so she's like, yeah, I choose this. I choose this life. It seems like when she goes to the ranch and leaves, she's choosing that as well to a, to a degree. Right. Um, and so I think there's there's a message in there, too, where it's sort of, I mean, the, the narrator at the end chooses as well. It's meaningful, but it's sort of like you have to pick the path that's going to make you not feel the most gross, which is... Yeah, it feels very like that's a Saunders-esque theme and way to approach things, which is just that it's all it's all kind of a slop and grotesque. And obviously this world is heavily compromised and like literally slavery is back and all that. Um, But it does feel meaningful, right, that she that she is positioned in the narrative that way so early. Like, hey, look, 
And, and even the, the the brother tries to intervene and like help her, quote unquote, and she gets really pissed because she's like, I I want to be doing this work. I want to you know please these clients because it's a way better life than what I was doing. So it's, yeah. is it race to the bottom theory? Is it the best of the worst theory? Like it's it's just kind of those ideas. Um, and I think he has that view too, where it's it, it's sort of like if you're losing, the best thing you can do is like find the find the best worst thing. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, just to kind of close the circle on that, the quote is, and you know, it's a little, um, he says, I accuse her of self and self-delusion. I ask her to reconsider for my sake and not have sex with this man. And then she takes my face between her hands, very tender scene. She says, I am never, ever starving or being made a fool of again. She says, no matter what, I'll sleep with the entire universe before I ever pick up another horse turd in a bucket. Then she goes out the door and the Ramirez turns cross themselves in tandem and take out their checkerboard. You know, back to back to game playing, back to game playing your life and trying to find the best worst path. And yeah, it's I don't know. I, I found those two character moments decisions. Obviously, they're also the main characters, so to speak. But I found those to be mirrors of each other. And I think it is a yeah. I don't know if it answers the why question that he poses, but I think it answers the like how does how should we respond then in a world that keeps beating us down? And that's those seem like pretty clear choices um, driven by impulse. So. One more thing, or maybe a couple more things to throw twists in this. His closest out we discuss is in Buffalo, getting that, you know, random business deal for his heroism. And how does it fail, Amanda? What draws him out and what, you know, causes him to mess this up? Sexual desire. Would you have seen that coming? (laughs) No pun intended, I guess, but like... It's very meaningful. I think that that is what the thing is the thing that undoes him, the decision that undoes him. It's sort of this primal human urge thing that he can't, I don't, you can hardly rationally explain at times. It's something that, you know, people have a hard time overcoming or sort of like overwhelming. And yeah, how did you read that then? Because I think it's, it's the closest thing to a peaceful, happy ending he could have had, maybe. Yeah. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? How do you read it? Well, with that scene, um, as you had said before, like the the idea that he was just like riding high on on life at that point, he was just like, yeah, it's so great. I was also thinking um, along the lines of the the Odyssey um, and the, the Lotus section where it's like you're kind of uh, the uh, Odysseus and, and his crew are like stuck in time and they're they're given all these like amazing things and they're just kind of like there and enjoying themselves like this, this pit of just, um, of physical pleasure and of, Mm -hmm. um, satisfaction that also, um, was how I was perceiving that part of the story is that this was his, uh, Lotus room or Lotus, whatever. I forgot what it's called. It wasn't a room. Um, anyway, so I don't remember that's either. How I, I, I was trying to think yeah. of it too. I, yeah, I don't recall. <laughs> island? Maybe it's an island. I mean, yeah. it would make sense if it's an island. Um, and uh, so it was just like the the ideas of like this again. It ties into survivability, like that earthly pleasure, the instant pleasure of things versus the long view of things. Um, I thought that that kind of just tied back to that idea of. Um, of selfishness, right? He's he's being selfish by choosing, and he's also like being really disingenuous, right? Like the the whole point, like the reason that the family is trusting him is because they think he's a normal, but he's yes, he's right. tricking them. 
You know, he's not he's not being authentic to himself. And um, so, of course, it ends badly because he's not he's not, you know, being honest um, and taking advantage. He even though it's a terrible situation, um, he is taking advantage of the situation and, and being like everybody else around him. Yeah, so. and he, I think I should probably read from 131, his kind of closest thing to being out and actually winning instead of losing, and it's, he's describing his life on the barge when he gets the job. Uh, it says, he gives me a hug, what a sweet man, he likes me, he trusts me, the way his t- his girth makes him raspy when he's standing still is endearing. I sit on the deck of the barge with a semi-automatic, so there, there, now he's, now he's living well. <laughs> the water's brown. As prescribed by federal regs, all inflow pipes are clearly labeled. Raw sewage, says one, very possible possibly thorium says another which that's a saundersy moment very funny dust comes an early moon pops over the swaying trees the barge slips around on its tether like a mild dog happy to be tied and i help myself to some noodles and milk noodles milk freedom i think very nice and it's you know it's the simplest base pleasures right he's got food he's got reliable thing place to be he can sleep well he can rest he can you know recharge literally and so yeah I think it's it's telling enough that that is maybe the most peace he finds in the whole story for as brief as it is and yeah just to be lured out by another base kind of simple impulse like the sex drive is yeah there's some simple commentary there about the how the the easiest basest common things can undo us um, let's do one more quote on this topic but then I think I'll, I'll have said my piece on being harsh to the losers. <laughs> um, let's look at a potential winner because his philosophy is intriguing. And winner, uh, hard air quotes there, listeners, hard, hard, because this is the slave master. So he, in his mind, he's winning. In his mind, he has a job. He has, you know, success. He has a business that he can run. Of course, it's, you know, morally, morally deplorable and like horrific and everything. But this is uh, his explanation of the matter on 155. Now, he says, I should tell you that, appearances notwithstanding, I am neither an angry nor a cruel man. I do not dislike you, and if truth were told, do not for an instant bind to the idea that you and your kind are somehow inferior to me or deserving of subjugation. Nevertheless, you will observe me to be, to say the least, the proverbial harsh taskmaster. Why, you might ask. In a word, Carlotta Bins, the most beautiful woman in Missouri who became of my rough-hewn appearance, has declared herself out of my reach unless I impress her in some less aesthetic-based arena, and I have chosen my arena and it is to be slave trading which will garner me money 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 which will translate into power 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 and houses 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 and a wardrobe suitable for my lady the charmed raven trust irrepressible or carlotta and that's kind of like a culmination of the stuff we've been talking about i think that's i don't know if it's an exact view for saunders in the novella i don't know if we can exactly theme graph that on one to one but it's awfully telling i think <laughs> like it talks about the sexual impulse there the drive for power the kind of base base needs base urges this idea that you can i don't know you can almost like participate but not be condemned i think saunders condemns these people obviously i don't i think his writing his view his you know the way he approaches the stories like he does not agree with this man quite clearly but i think within the worlds that saunders is creating this guy kind of has it down so to speak it's like if you want to get out if you want to not be down there's one way to to avoid that to like not suffer that what do you think yeah for sure it's he's the uh <clears throat> he's got it all he's and again, it's it's the choice of of using the system, even if it hurts others. Um, and and there's no moral qualm there, unlike the uh, right. <clears throat> the other guy who sells him into slavery, um, who has the moral quandary, but still 
but still thinks he's a good guy at heart. This guy, mm-hmm. the actual slave owner, he's like, I know I'm being selfish. Right. And but it's I okay because I say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can do the bad thing because I say it's bad. Right? Do you right. get it or no? Yeah. Yeah, kind of a hypocrisy there, run rampant. So, yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting. It, it, the other stories would open up a lot of avenues for that question about how the world treats people who are losing and why that's so bad on them. But I think the getting out of losing, like that final person makes clear, you have to compromise yourself, become a hypocrite, and be comfortable living in that. And then if you can be comfortable, then, yeah, I mean, go for it, right? That's how you get out. So, excellent. Any final thoughts on the essays? Well, well-covered ground as usual. Yeah. We did Interesting act. stuff. Did great job. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the final couple segments. Um, I'm going to also say, because my headphones may not survive this, for critical assistance, let's just do two quotes a piece. Let's shorten this a bit, <laughs> just because I, do I don't want this to cut off awkwardly. Uh, this listener, Critical Assistance, is one of our final segments on a book club, and it is when we pull a review or outside source to give us some thoughts on the work, like we've given our opinions quite exhaustively and our thoughts, so let's hear from somebody else. Amanda, take it away first. Where's the review from? Where's the analysis from? Would you pull? Uh, this is from the New York Times, and it's nice. called uh, Virtual Realities by Jay McInerney. McInerney, sure. Yeah. McInerney. Um, So I'll just uh, read the the last couple of um, paragraphs that he wrote. Mr. Saunders has an ear for the offbeat cadences of the contemporary idiom, not least the language of businessmen. The employers of his hapless first-person narrators tend to distort the language as deftly as they do history. Respect, says one of them. That's the quality I hope to imbibe to you during the confab that is to follow this present preface I'm extolling. And mm. I do, I, like we were talking a little bit about dialogue um, earlier, and I do love the way that Saunders kind of like twists the language. He's obviously a master of language. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> the way that he uh, creates unique sentences, they're often very concise and short, but his imagery, as we talked about in the previous podcast, is often really compelling because he introduces these weird twists and weird images that... Um, from from these weird metaphors that are are amazing and create a whole vibe that's yeah. really great. Yeah, I think it's it is it's definitely clever and deft and it's it's offbeat in just the right way. So I've always yeah. respected it about him and some of these reviewers too have have articulated his style well. The benefits of, you know, doing a written piece and really being able to hash out your thoughts, but yeah, I think that's a that's well said. What other yeah. quotes from this piece? Uh, This is from his conclusion. The danger of a style as singular as this is that it can seem mannered in a book-length dose. And in a story like Downtrodden Mary's failed campaign of terror set in a theme park featuring a cow with a plexiglass window in its flank, Mr. Saunders seems to be parodying himself, which is no small feat for a rookie storyteller. But just when you plan to rebel against all the wacky ticks, his stories take surprising and sometimes stunning turns. Quite unexpectedly, between guffaws, you find yourself moved. Mr. Saunders is one of those rare writers who can effortlessly effortlessly blend satire and sentiment. And I think that's true. Like, these are satirical uh, pieces, but I do find a lot of... I found myself quite moved by a lot of it. One of our, like, in the previous um, podcast that we did... The, the final segment we did was about, like, the things that made us feel things, the, the emotions. And there are some quite yeah. emotional scenes that he's able to, to really pull out. And 
which is surprising considering these are mostly satirical works. Yeah, and absurdist in, in spots too. Uh, even the sort of, I mean, even the tale about slavery uh, couldn't pick a more serious topic, fraught and everything. And even that has some real kind of absurdity, heightened silliness in little moments and little details too. So yeah, yeah. it's it, it applies to all of it for sure. That's a yeah, well said at the end too. Interesting thoughts. I'm actually going to pull a quote that talks about satire as well. So let me start there. Mine is from the intro. I went lazy here, Amanda. Went super lazy. <laughs> and why not too? The intro actually I thought was pretty well articulated and interesting. It's by Joshua Ferris. It's in my edition of the book anyway. There's an, an intro by Joshua Ferris, and then there's a concluding essay by Saunders himself. Both are fascinating. I found them to be, because I've never read, I haven't read a ton of criticism of Saunders. I just love his work on its own, but I thought mm-hmm. I found them both really, yeah, insightful and, and interesting. I should read more criticism, of course, as always, <laughs> a reminder. Anyway, this is a sentence about the satire. Um, he says, at the same time, I thought I could rectify the all too common mistake critics makes w- critics make when talking about Saunders, which is to call him a satirist in the early style of Mark Twain. While Saunders does satirize, or in other words, renders the real absurd, he also carefully and lovingly and artfully renders the absurd real, which is a much harder trick to pull off and once done, moves the so-called satirist out of the pigeonhole and into the open air of the first-rate artist. And then he says, you know, but I thought that was too academic." So I'm not sure if that's going to work, yada, yada. Uh, What do you think about that little twist? I I do think that if I were to hand this book to someone, I don't think I'd say it's satire, but I could see why that adjective would be one of the first ones someone would say. Yeah, I I think that it is a a kind of satire, but I think that um, he makes a really great point that it's not the kind of like overblown satire that we're used to. If you think of like Jonathan Swift's, modest mm-hmm. proposal right that's like just pure satire or the onion um, you know <laughs> yeah. yes the onion um <clears throat> but i like the point that he makes out that like yes it's satire but he also brings it back and makes it very realistic in a lot of ways and i think that's why the sentiment comes through why we can get emotional when it comes to certain scenes um it's kind of like sci-fi and he's he does great with the world building but he makes it like seem like it's it's possible and it's very much akin to what life is like even now yeah i think the really hack kind of like overwrought analogy hackneyed analogy i just thought of um it's like it's like a tickle like it can go from fun to torture in like a second like it really like you know it's 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 so instantaneous sometimes too it's like you're in one moment you're having a joyous laugh and then in the next you're like this is like unbearably annoying or not annoying his writing's not annoying but yeah like the the sort of like it becomes torturous or something and so yeah i think he he can flip that switch incredibly articulately and subtly and um yeah worth worth praising but uh, yeah i thought i'd pull that quote just because i do think it would be not a full on mistake to recommend him as a satirist but it wouldn't be i just don't think it should be the first thing you say i think it's you know other descriptors are are stronger yeah that one for sure and then let's do should we do some art criticism here um let's let's pull some insight into his writing style he says and sometimes the sentences while funny are tinged with a melancholy in a fashion that has come to be a trademark of saunders who has a genius for wringing laughter from the tragic and then he describes some of that does that that reads true to you as well i mean i know you're new to him so i don't i don't want to even give my thoughts on that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think thus far yeah I, i would say that that is true yeah yeah final quote then a brief one um 
he says, this is his conclusion, um, he, he says Saunders redefines realism itself, right? And then he says, I, I mean something more by just he inspires it. I mean that Saunders writes like something of a saint. He seems in touch with some better being. He teaches us not only how to write, but how to live. He sets the bar and also the example. He hopes we might see the possibility of our better selves and act on it. He seems sent, what other way to put it, to teach us mercy and grace. And it all begin, begins here with this collection. A, incredibly lofty praise. Um, do you view him as a saint-like figure? <laughs> I do not. Um, I think that he yeah. has good intentions for sure. Um, yeah, and and yeah. it's very clear what he wants. He wants us to be better people for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I do think that, I, you know, it's an intro for the book. It's that's the kind of hyperbolic fun claims you get to make in a, in a moment like that. And, I, you know, so I kind of nodded and also just kind of smirked at it. I do think for certain people, though, because Saunders has this unique gift and these the unique abilities with tone and insight and balance uh, if you're a person like me who really connects to the writing i could see that not seeming so hyperbolic just because you're like wow somebody really put it all together somebody writes with the the simple stylistic verve of hemingway but actually is funny and interesting and not dry and masculine and weird <laughs> like it yeah it's kind of an intriguing thing he's done so yeah. i am um, I'll, le- I'll leave that praise hanging in the air <laughs> as we get to the the hall of fame but it's it's yeah incredibly lofty but um yeah, I, I mean, I love his work. I, I don't know if I'd say he's a saint. I don't know if any writer's a saint. That's a tough, it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, say, we'll leave the sainthood for people curing, you know, like leprosy in the in India or whatever. What did Mother Teresa yeah. do? I don't remember, but something of, like that. Yeah. So yeah. We'll, we'll reserve our sainthood for her, um, I think. <laughs> Was she like a Catholic propaganda? I don't know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't praise people I don't actually know that well. <laughs> she might be like a Catholic demonic propagandists who knows you know it's all very complicated um let's do the hall of fame and stop hating on mother Teresa, <laughs> who i think is deceased too so we won't we won't speak ill yeah, of her she is. okay yeah so <laughs> rest, in, rest in peace and thanks for your good works uh, helping those in need of course always worthwhile uh hall of fame is when we induct something about the writing into our own kind of personal literary hall of fame basically we're picking something we really admired about the book even if we didn't like it the good news is on this one i think we both liked it a good amount so shouldn't be too tricky to do Amanda, what are you going to induct from Saunders into our Hall of Fame? I'm going to say his concise imagery um, paired with his unique similes that create great tone, mood, and, and everything else. Yeah, him comparing himself or saying that like Hemingway was an early inspiration in his essay, that like really did something in my brain because I've never been able to articulate it that way. And I, I because of their content, I never would have thought to compare them. But he really has that concision going for him and, and makes it work well instead of it being sort of a drag. Because uh, he, he, then he's indulgent, too. He knows when to turn that off, I think, in the right moments. So, yeah, well said. I'm going to go with, I mean, we just kind of harped on this hard, but the combination of humor and kind of cruelty almost, like circumstantial life cruelty, situational cruelty. But I, I just think that it's incredibly tough to be to have it both ways. Um, the other author, the other work I can think of right away was when we read The Good Lord Bird. Do you remember? Yes. I'm sure you remember doing that. Of course. It, yeah, and it's just like it's just difficult to take something and say I'm going to write a hilarious slave narrative. That's just like okay. I mean, you know, wish you the best. That seems challenging, if not a fool's errand. And he did that. That book was excellent. And then yeah, it's just I, I feel like you have to respect Saunders for being able to vacillate so well and have insights and humanity in the really really cruel moments. Um, and then I, I'm throwing a bonus in just because I do love Saunders. I think he just has the best sense of strangeness i just think it's 
it's hard to articulate perfectly. I'd really have to make my own little essay. I'd have to hammer out my ideas, but I just think he knows when to make things weird and then knows when to make things sentimental. It's really difficult to explain, I think, but to me, it's just the perfect blend. That that really ties into with like his ability to use metaphor. Like it's there, yeah. they stand out so much because it is kind of strange and it lends to that overall. Uh, strangeness of his narrative in a lot of ways. Yeah, it certainly does. So I'll, I'll throw in either. I'm happy to praise him till the cows come home, as the expression goes. I'm <laughs> content to <laughs> content to just heap praise upon him. One of my favorites. So so glad I could share that with you. Any final just thoughts on reading Saunders? Uh, thoughts on the collection? Anything you know for the first time? Um, I really enjoyed him, and I, and I'm actually um, interested in reading some more of him. So thank Sweet. you for introducing him. To I'll me. have to yeah, I'll have to drop off my my own personal library collection. He really has. I mean, that's the other thing. He's a professor, and so he's he's got his day job, but he doesn't publish as much. You know, selfishly, of course, I'm like, man, he should publish a book every year. I want to read a hundred books, even if some are bad and some are great. But he doesn't publish that often, honestly. He like, I think he has maybe four or five short story collections and one novel, and that's basically it. So you have to kind of savor, savor what he releases. He also did release a nonfiction book that I'm incredibly intrigued by, um, where he analyzes and kind of teaches you how to read Russian literature. And, I, and I've kind of grown away from Russian literature. And so part of me really wants to do that book because I want him to convince me, you know, <laughs> I want him to like draw me back in. Um, my, my own time reading some Russian stuff was not, I would say, that fruitful. So um but, you know, it has, has its moments. Anyway, um, I'll stop rambling about Saunders. We've been the Lightly Literary Podcast, and we thank you, as always, for listening all the way through. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at that handle, just at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. If you've listened through, give us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to this. That helps enormously, and we appreciate it. So, yeah, check out the social feeds, ratings as best as you can or as often as you can. Always help. Amanda, do you want to talk about the books coming up? We like to announce these at the end here. Yeah, next up we have uh, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, which is a classic novel. Yep. Uh, then we have King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hawkschild. And then we have The Psychology of Zelda, which is edited by Anthony M. Bean, PhD. Essay collection. Essay collection about, um, about Zelda, the video game. So. Weirdly enough, that episode might come out like almost exactly when the new big Zelda game does, which we did not oh, time at all. Oh, that'd be perfect. Yeah, it comes out on, <laughs> in the middle of May. So that might, I don't know, it's hard to predict that far ahead. I don't like to look that far ahead on the calendar, but um, yeah. that's going to be actually really close. That's a weird, <laughs> weird coincidence. Maybe that'll all promote, you know, I'll pay $500 to Instagram to promote that episode or something absurd. <laughs> Oh, we love playing the game here, people. We love it. We love <laughs> love doing the deeds. Anyway, um, thanks again, listeners, as always, for sticking with us. We got those books coming up. Check on the feed. We'll be updating it regularly, as always. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. 